Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 30 of History on Fire. If you absolutely cannot stand ads or you want to get episodes delivered to you early, there are a few options for that on my Patreon page. I'll put a link in the episode notes. If you'd like to check it out, that would be very sweet. But if you do stand ads, let me give thanks to the sweet folks who keep us in business. Let me start out with Flavia. Huge thanks to Flavia for sponsoring four episodes in 2018. Flavia is the world's largest online club of spirits enthusiasts. Members get a themed tasting box that lets you try different spirits before buying a full-size bottle, so you get to try things first. A digital home bar, access to their vault, which holds a selection of rare and hard-to-find spirits available to members only exclusive Flaviar private bottlings, access to live events, the Flaviar app, which is basically considered like the IMDB of spirits. Normally, they have a fairly long waiting list, but they have arranged priority access for History on Fire listeners. So if you'd like to check them out, please go to flaviar.com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code HISTORY. That is F-L-A-V-I-A-R dot com forward slash exclusive. I tried one of the tasting boxes they sent me. It's awesome. I really, really like it. So if you if you like spirits, check them out. They are sweet folks for sponsoring and they produce really good stuff. Let me also give a gigantic thank you to Blue Apron. Blue Apron decided to sponsor us for the whole year. I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason why you're getting so many episodes, you know, now we're doing two episodes a month in January, two episodes a month in February, we'll go back to one episode a month for most of the rest of the year, but you're still getting like 15 episodes, and really that's thanks to Blue Apron. But what I'm saying about my sneaking suspicion is the fact that I think actually producer and editor of the podcast Savannah M just conspired with Blue Apron to increase the workload because we get more coupon codes for some of their meals and Savannah is just 100% addicted to uh, Blue Apron food so the reason why you know once in a while I'm like I'm working too hard we're producing too many episodes she's like go back in the dungeon just you know how did you get away from your chains just work hard and get me my Blue Apron food and shut up. So, you know, I'm a slave to Blue Apron. That's the way it works. 
Having said that, Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week and customers can pick either two, three or four recipes based on what best fits their schedule. Blue Apron is treating History on Fire listener to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So kickstart the new year with Blue Apron and check them out, $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Also big thank you to my usual sponsor, Onnit, which produces, I've been using their alpha brain like there's no tomorrow due to the increased workload. So check them out at onnit.com forward slash history, where you can try out their supplements, where you can try out some of their workout gear, clothing, special foods, you name it. And of course, Datsusara that produces the greatest hemp gear on the planet from travel bags, backpacks, hoodies, wallets, pretty much anything that can be made with textile or made of hemp, they do it and they do it really well. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. Oh, but one more that I want to say a big thank you to. There's a company called NeverTapGear.com. I'll put a link for them as well in the episode notes. This guy sent us some, um, with perfect timing, recently I popped my knee three times doing jiu-jitsu. So my knee has not been very happy lately. And right about the third time it happened, they contacted me and sent me some of their... uh, their gear that is really designed to protect the knee while uh, doing any kind of physical activity, particularly for jiu-jitsu, but really for any kind of physical activity. So check them out. If you train jiu-jitsu, if you do any kind of athletic activity, check out their gear. Their knee brace is awesome. I've been trying it. That's what I've been using to roll these days. So I'll put a link in the episode notes. Now, having said all that... I will now shut up so that without further ado, let's go set history on fire. For this particular series starting right now, we're going to do something a little different. This is not going to be a narrative series with characters and the chronology of events. This is more of a cultural history, focusing on the games in ancient Rome and more specifically on gladiators. I have read more than any human being should about this particular topic, since this was the topic that I had originally planned for my PhD dissertation, but I'll try to make sure to keep this fresh and not overly nerdy. I don't promise that I succeed, I'll just say I'll try. This is going to be a two-part series. The first part, what you're going to be listening to today, is going to be mostly factual and evidence-based. It will cover a series of key topics, anything from daily life in gladiatorial schools to the type of events gladiators participated in, and so on and so forth. In the next episode, we'll discuss, or at least we'll venture conjectures, because the reality is nobody knows for sure, there are lots of theories about it, but we'll discuss the reasons why gladiators were idolized and at the same time vilified both in antiquity as well as today. And more importantly, we'll explore some of the possible reasons for the popular fascination with gladiators 
something that will go beyond the simple bloodlust and sadistic voyeurism that usually that's how many people explain gladiatorial games. So from a purely personal standpoint, in today's episode, it's important. I mean, we can do without because it lays the groundwork for any further discussion. But the real juice is going to be in the next episode. That's the one that gets me even more excited about this topic. So let's get the ball rolling. Now, fighting is something that never fails to attract the attention of human beings. It's really wired in our DNA. And the duel is the ultimate archetype of what we imagine individual fighting to be about. You know, two men locked in single combat, putting everything they have on the line in a context in which you don't win or lose based on scoring points, but where, quite literally, life and death are at stake. Human beings have been fascinated with this stuff since the dawn of time. And even in modern society, think, think about something like combat sports. Combat sports are basically a non-lethal, ritualized version of the same dynamics. Gladiatorial fighting was a key part of Roman culture. Dozens of books exist on the topic. Nearly every single movie ever made about ancient Rome will find a way to feature gladiators at some point. And this is not just a modern exaggeration overhyping a particular aspect of uh, ancient Roman culture. Romans were truly obsessed with gladiatorial combat. In a very famous, highly rhetorical passage, the ancient Roman writer Tacitus writes that, or rather wrote since he's back then, wrote that gladiators were the most common topic of conversation on the lips of his contemporaries. There's an archaeological artifact found at Pompeii that speaks volumes about just how popular gladiators were. What archaeologists found was a baby nursing bottle made of clay and with, on it was carved the figure of a gladiator. Some scholars speculate that the idea behind it was that the baby should uh, symbolically drink the gladiator's courage. So when even something as common as a nursing bottle features gladiatorial iconography, you get a sense of just how pervasive the theme was in ancient Rome. So it is hard to disagree with author J.P. Toner when he writes, it was by its games that the empire came to be known. Gladiatorial games were, indeed, the number one source of sport and entertainment. One of the obvious questions that pops in people's mind when talking about gladiators is who exactly was the first person to say, hey guys, you know what would be a great idea? We should get two men, arm them with sword and shield, and have them hack at each other for our entertainment. Who's in? Who, who likes this plan? You know, the short answer is we don't know. As most things that find their origins in ancient history, the evidence is thin and controversial. But let's try to answer as best as possible the question, where did gladiatorial begin and why? Let's start with the where. There is some evidence that the Etruscans 
the mysterious civilization that ruled central Italy before the Romans, there's some evidence that these guys had gladiators. Considering that Rome borrowed many different cultural traits from the Etruscans, it seems like a logical assumption that they inherited gladiatorial combat from them. One of the earliest sources we have discussing the origins of gladiators, Nicolaus of Damascus, writing in the 1st century before Common Era, said that the gladiators originated among the Etruscans. Add to this the fact that even in Roman times, the attendants in the arena in charge of removing the body of the dead were dressed as Etruscans gods. When you put it all together, it seemed like it's case closed, right? It's a done deal. Uh, The Etruscans are the ones who created gladiators. Well, not so fast. Quite a few scholars dispute this idea. It turns out that the earliest evidence for gladiatorial combat is found in uh, tomb paintings from the 4th century before Common Era, not from central Italy where the Etruscans were, but from southern Italy. Lots more ancient evidence coming from the area of Campania, where Naples is, just to give you a, a frame of reference. Lots more evidence from out there in southern Italy than we can find from Tuscany in central Italy where the Etruscans were based. All the most ancient arenas for gladiatorial combat are also found in Campania, and so are the first gladiatorial schools, which we know of, during, uh, created during the 2nd century before Common Era in Capua. So in light of this, most scholars are divided between the two options, with some suggesting that maybe the Etruscans borrowed the gladiatorial idea from southern Italy. And considering that southern Italy was heavily influenced by Greek colonists coming to the area in ancient times, some even argue that the origin may be found in some long-lost Greek tradition that flourished in the Italian colonies. Okay, that's great and all, but let's get to the more important questions of why. What was the point of gladiatorial combat when it began? When you stop to consider just how many cultures from around the ancient world practice human sacrifice, it blows your mind. There's plenty of evidence to indicate that our ancestors from China to pre-Columbian America, from Europe to Africa and passing through the Middle East, regularly sacrifice people in occasion of the death of rulers or other important people. In some cases, these were people who died sometimes as volunteers so that they could um, go with the dead person into the afterlife to kind of be in their companions in the afterlife. In other cases, the meaning for sacrificing people when somebody important died was different. It wasn't to send them as their servants or their companions or anything like that. In these cases, the idea was that the blood of sacrificial victims was supposed to feed the spirits of the dead. It may sound weird to many of us today, but this was actually a very widespread concept among many cultures all over the world. Consider, for example, one of the classics of Western literature, the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, the hero of the story, Odysseus, visits Hades, the realm of the dead, 
and while he's there he has to offer his blood to his dead mother so that she can drink it. Only after doing this, she's able to recognize him and speak to him. In the story, the soothsayer Tiresias told Odysseus that only when the souls of the dead drink the blood of sacrifices, they are able to find a spark of life and energy to speak. Without the blood, they are but shadows in oblivion. Author Alan Baker explained, A dead man was seen by the Romans as a shadow emptied of its substance, a lack. It was with the spilling of human blood, the very fluid of life itself, that the dead were given back a transitory reality, and thus propitiated. This, by the way, seems to go a long way to explain the origin of the folklore about vampires. You know, the blood of the living is needed for the dead, or undead, as they may be, to gain energy and function. Great. What does this have to do with gladiators? One of the early church fathers, the Christian writer Tertullian, argued that gladiatorial combat evolved from the blood sacrifices performed by the Greeks at funerals. Tertullian wrote, I quote, For of old, in the belief that the souls of the dead are propitiated with human blood, they used at funerals to sacrifice captives or slaves of poor quality. Afterwards, it seemed good to obscure their impiety by making it a pleasure. So after the persons procured had been trained in such arms as they then had, and as best they might, parenthesis, their training was to learn to be killed, they then did them to death on the appointed funeral day at the tombs. Now, that's a really convoluted sentence. Tertullian could have used a good editor there, because that's a long sentence with no commas, no nothing, but... You get the idea, in any case. In the 2nd century common era, the scholar Festus similarly stated that combat was a substitute for human sacrifice to feed the dead with the blood of the living. If these guys are right, basically what happened was that people figured they would offer blood at the funerals, not through executions, but through duels. Now, it's possible that this is a smear campaign on the part of Tertullian, trying to connect bloody pagan traditions with the bloodshed of gladiatorial combat. But there are passages in the Iliad, the Odyssey, and even the Aeneid, or I have no idea how it's pronounced in English, I grew up in, in Italian, it was called the Aeneid, I'm, I'm taking a guess here. In all of these works of ancient literature, there are passages that seem to suggest this is not just a Christian invention, but that the original purpose of gladiatorial combat was truly a type of blood sacrifice in honor of the dead. In the Iliad, the Greek hero Achilles sacrifices several enemies for the funeral of his friend Patroclus. And on top of Patroclus' grave, the heroes Ajax and Diomedes engage in armed combat until they spill some blood. In the Aeneid, the year of the story, Aeneas, 
sacrifice several prisoners of war during the funeral of a friend, and organizes athletic games for the funeral of his father. These passages have convinced several historians that this Greek belief was at the roots of later gladiatorial combat. Within the Italian context, the Etruscans did kill prisoners of war for their own uh, dead. Like in the year 358 before Common Era, for example, at Tarquinia, one of their main cities, they sacrificed 307 Roman prisoners. Also the ancient authors Florus and Orosius, they tell us that during Spartacus' rebellion, which, by the way, if you haven't checked it out yet, I covered this in episode 2 of History on Fire, when his friend Crixus was killed in battle with the Romans, Spartacus used the Roman prisoners as gladiators for Crixus', for Crixus funeral, forcing 300 of them to fight to the death. And to add more fuel to the fire, we also know that the first recorded gladiatorial contest held in Rome was part of a funeral. Uh, incidentally, the first show that we know of in Rome was in the year 264 before Common Era. It's very possible that there may have been gladiatorial combat before this, but we have no proof. And this first case in 264 before Common Era was staged by uh, Decimus Junius Brutus, in honor of his dead father. Similarly, both Pliny and Plutarch tell us that in the year 65 before Common Era, Julius Caesar, yes, dead Julius Caesar, staged gladiatorial games with 320 pairs of gladiators in honor of his, his own dead father. And the first recorded now Machiaur, which is the Latin for naval battle, was also staged as part of the games. He also, he apparently liked this concept, because he did it again in the year 46 before Common Era, offering gladiatorial fights in honor of the death of his daughter. Even the fact mentioned earlier of having people dressed as gods coming to brand and remove the bodies from Roman arenas. By the way, why brand? Well, the branding was done to check that they were really dead and they were not faking death. But the fact that the people coming into the arena to brand the body and remove them from the arena, they were dressed as gods, seemed to indicate some connection between gladiators and religious beliefs. Of course, among ancient Romans, this supposed religious origin quickly turned into a more secular form of entertainment. And by the time we have more solid evidence, whatever religious beliefs were associated with gladiatorial combat were but a distant memory. As tantalizing as these debates about the where and why gladiatorial combat began, we will probably never know for sure, so I'll cut this short to start sketching some essential facts about later gladiatorial events. As we will discuss more in depth later, a weird ambiguity surrounded the status of gladiators in Roman society. On one hand, gladiators were like modern sports superstars. They were famous and revered. On the other hand, Romans, much like the Etruscans, liked to be spectators, but not actors in spectacles of any kind. Being entertainers 
was considered low class because you were essentially seen as a servant to other people's pleasure. And for this reason, the majority of gladiators were slaves, often particularly strong men who had been captured as prisoners of war. Criminals and people who had fallen in heavy debt could also find themselves more or less forcibly recruited into gladiatorial schools. If you watch modern movies about ancient Rome, Rome, most movies have focused almost exclusively on the experience of slaves as gladiators. But there was also a decent number of free citizens who volunteered to become gladiators. We don't know the exact percentage of prisoners of war, slaves and volunteers among gladiators. We do know that the number of volunteers increased after the first century common era. Incidentally, author Michael Grant really didn't like them very much and this in his monograph about gladiators referred to them as desperate and violent men. So some maybe became gladiators because they were adrenaline junkies. Most did it for money and for fame or a combination of all of the above reasons. If gladiators performed particularly well, the sponsor of the games could present them with a wooden sword that would be symbolically freeing them from their vows, and in the case of enslaved gladiators, literally free them from slavery. But many people, even after they were freed, they would re-enlist, either due to few opportunities outside the arena, or because, like many athletes still to this day, it's really difficult to go to a normal life after having thousands of people chanting your name. Most gladiators were in their 20s, like most athletes in general, since the 20s and early 30s are considered a peak for athletic performance. Often, once they aged, they would become instructors in gladiatorial schools or bodyguards for elite families. Something else regarding just who exactly were gladiators. Now, the classic image we have of gladiators, if I tell you to think of a gladiator, the image will probably pop up of some burly, strong, tough man. And for the most part, it's true, the majority were men. But there were also females, less so during the early Republic, but in greater numbers during imperial times. In some way, this parallels the greater freedom that women enjoyed in later Roman history compared to earlier times. Traditionally, women in Roman society were always under men's authority, either their father or husband or brother, but much more freedom, eventually they gained much more freedom, particularly for wealthy women in the later Republic and early Empire. The evidence about female gladiators is rather thin, but archaeologists have found some. For example, we have a stone relief carving from Alicarnassus, dated from either the 1st or 2nd century common era, of two female gladiators named Amazonia and Achilleia. And British archaeologists claim to have discovered the physical remains of a female gladiator. There are also quite a few references in the primary sources, for example in the writings of Tacitus, Martial, Juvenal and Petronius. 
So we know they existed. Probably they weren't very common. For the most part, the references to female gladiators are from outraged upper-class Romans who were offended by what female gladiators represented in terms of gender roles. It appears many Romans were against them because they challenged the hyper-masculine realm of the arena. Mainstream Roman gender roles held that, as they say in Lord of the Rings, combat was the province of men. Women were not supposed to have the strength or aggression necessary to be good fighters. The writer Juvenal said, What sense of modesty can you find in a woman wearing a helmet who runs away from her own gender? And he also added, How can a woman be decent, sticking her head in a helmet, denying the sex she was born with? Ah, degenerate girls from the line of our praetors and consuls. Tell us, whom have you seen got up in any such fashion, panting and sweating like this? No gladiator's wench, no tough striptease broad would ever so much as attempt it. In some way, the way in which ancient Romans responded to female gladiators can be compared to the way in which modern MMA mixed martial art fans responded to women entering the realm of mixed martial arts in modern times. In both cases, both in the early days of MMA and in gladiatorial games, women were relegated to freak shows. The Emperor Domitian, for example, or Domitian, depending on how you want to pronounce it in English, for example, organized games featuring female gladiators fighting against dwarves. It's more of a comedy act than anything. A lot of early female MMA in modern times was similarly more of a sideshow than a legitimate contest. And many fans, both in ancient and modern times, were outraged, even by those female fighters who actually possessed real skills and wanted to be taken seriously. They felt like women didn't belong. I mean, even Dana White, the president of the UFC, the biggest MMA organization today, for a long time resisted allowing women in his organization. He said he had no interest in seeing women fight. Eventually, though, he changed his mind. Because as scandalous as women gladiators were, and as scandalous as female MMA fighters were until recently, they clearly attract the attention of enough people to carve for themselves a niche within the games. This love-hate relationship with female gladiators is reflected in their legal status, which kept changing depending on who was making the laws. At the beginning of the Common Era, for example, the Senate imposed a law requiring a minimum of age of 20 years old for free women willing to fight in the arena. Later, there were prohibition against upper-class women fighting. Then it was popular again, it was allowed and popular again during the reign of Emperor Nero. Nero apparently actually loved seeing them. Tacitus wrote about this. Speaking of the year 63 Common Era, he said, The same year witnessed gladiatorial displays on a no less magnificent scale than before, but exceeding all precedent in the number of distinguished women and senators disgracing themselves in the arena. 
But then the Emperor Septimius Severus outlawed upper-class female gladiators in 200 common era, for he considered them an insult to masculine military virtues. So it seems like, depending on who was in power, female gladiators may or may not have been allowed. Having said all that, let's now move on to what life was like in the Ludus. Uh, the Ludus is the term that Romans used to refer to gladiatorial schools. These schools were privately organized by a lanista, or a manager of gladiators, who would train his fighters and then rent their services to an editor, which is to say a person willing to spend a ton of money to set up the games, of which gladiatorial combat was to be the main event. There were a few cases of editors who just cut out the middlemen and ran their own gladiatorial schools. For example, Julius Caesar has noted the earlier sponsored ga- the games several times in his life, but he also owned his own Ludus with his own team of gladiators. The Ludus was the place where tough men were forged into gladiators. There they slept, ate, lived and trained. Slave gladiators were kept under lock and key inside the Ludus, Essentially, the Ludus was a sort of prison for them. But the volunteer gladiators, or those who were enlisted or in some way earned the trust of the Lanista, these were free to come and go as they pleased. Some lived on the outside and had their own family, and they only came inside in the morning, they would spend the day training, and then they would leave in the evening. Even gladiators who were not allowed out of the Ludus were usually allowed to receive visits from women, either their girlfriends or groupies or prostitutes. Homosexual gladiators lived in their own section of the school. The Ludus featured rooms for gladiators to sleep in, usually they would get two gladiators to share a room. Then there was an armory where all the weapons were kept, a forge to repair the weapons and armor, a communal kitchen, a hospital, and of course, the training ground. Speaking of training, gladiators were taught the ins and outs of their trade by either former gladiators or masters in the use of some weapons. Caesar, for example, had his gladiators trained by senators or equites, literally knights, were renowned swordsmen. The training weapons were made uh, of wood in order to avoid major injuries. And they were actually heavier than the actual weapon they would use uh, in a fight. The reason for making the training weapons heavier was to train the muscles used for swinging the weapons. In this way, when they would use the real thing, it would feel like a breeze. The extra weight of the training weapons was also to develop extra stamina and in addition to drilling techniques with a partner and to live sparring the bulk of the training was done by practicing the techniques against a wooden post about six feet tall the post was to a gladiator what the heavy bag is to a boxer in his book Epitoma Rei Militaris, 4th century author Vegetius, wrote 
neither the arena nor the battlefield ever proved a man invincible in armed combat unless he was judged to have been truly trained at the post. So the importance of training with the post is always stressed in the primary sources. Overall, there's no argument that life in the training schools was tough, and the possibility of a violent death was always cast in a shadow on a gladiator's day-to-day life. But considering the standards of living of the Roman lower classes, things were actually not that bad. Since gladiators had to be physical specimens in perfect shape for their fights, they received better nutrition and medical care than most poor people in Rome. There was a whole team of people catering to them, from trainers to doctors, from cooks to masseurs. For example, a famous doctor named Galen, so famous that he became the personal physician of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, he started out as a doctor for gladiators. Galen prescribed a regimen that emphasized exercise, physiotherapy, massage, diet, and good hygiene. And the Galen example is no exception. It was rather common for first-class doctors to be tending to gladiators. Diet-wise, contrary to one, what one may expect, gladiators didn't eat much meat. Their diet was heavy on barley, beans, and fruit. On the night before a show, they would be given what was known as the cena libera, a big dinner in which they they could gorge themselves on any food they wanted. Now, some people, you know, thinking that overstuffing themselves the night before the fight may negatively affect their performance, some gladiators played it safe and ate very little. Others gorged themselves because the way they saw it, life was short anyway. Might as well indulge whenever it was possible. Typically, gladiators fought about three, four times per year. If they fought well enough, they could usually get their freedom after about five years, so roughly between maybe 15 to 20 fights. A few of them made lots of money in their careers. The famous ones just made bank thanks to some editors who rewarded them for their skills. It is said Emperor Tiberius often paid very well the best gladiators of his age. Emperor Nero even gave gave houses as gifts to his favorites. But this was usually the exception more than the rule. The relationships between gladiators and their instructors were usually very close, and so were the relationships among gladiators. In a few ugly cases, gladiators who were friends with one another would have to fight each other in the arena. There are even a few cases in the historical literature of gladiators who killed some other men in the arena only to be mourning at their graves afterwards because they were friends. I keep using the word gladiators as if they were all the same, but it's useful to keep in mind that traditionally gladiators were divided into a few different categories, such as uh, um, the retiari, the secutores, mirmillonis, and so on. Each of these types was equipped with a very specific armor and weapons. 
number one weapon from which the gladiators derived their name was the gladius. A straight, short sword, about, maybe the blade would be a little over two feet, so maybe about three feet total in length, which was also the main weapon of Roman soldiers. Just by looking at it, you would think it's a terrible choice as a dueling weapon, since it doesn't feature any kind of handguard. Now, if you're wondering why that's a big deal, it's probably because you never got into a blade-against-blade fight. In any kind of sword fighting, you need a handguard, or the easiest way for the opponent to win is by attacking your hand holding the weapon, cutting it and disarming you, before then trying to kill you. So how could the gladius be used effectively without people cutting your hand? Both in the case of the gladiators as well as in the case of the Roman military, the gladius was never used alone, but always in conjunction with a shield. So the reality was that fighters would clash shields with one another and then try to sneak a stab with the gladius from either above, below or from the side of the shield. Even though gladius and shield were the most typical weapons used by gladiators, they were by no means the only ones. Different types of gladiators may have been equipped with their own unique weapons. There were fairly strict rules regarding which types of gladiators would be matched together in the arena. Among some of the types of gladiators appearing earlier in the historical record are the Samnites, the Gauls and the Thracians. Since these are all names of ethnic groups defeated by the Romans, it seems kind of likely that the first representatives of these types were actual Samnites, Gauls and Thracians, captured as prisoners of war and forced to fight as gladiators, sporting some of their native armor and weapons. In later times, however, when used in a gladiatorial context, the names only refer to a style of gladiator irrespective of the ethnic origin of the particular fighter. We know relatively little of these early types, since the evidence for them is thin, and with the exception of the Thracians, were no longer in use by Augustan times. It is speculated that it may have given rise to better-known gladiatorial types such as the Secutor, the Mormillo, and possibly the Oplomachus. About the, tra- the Thracian, we know that they were bare-chested and armed with a sica, which was a curved sword used primarily for thrusting. They also had a small shield, shin guards, an arm protector, and a crested helmet decorated with the image of a griffin. Among the types of gladiators that were popular during the late Republic and Imperial types, we have the Provocator, who only fought against other Provocator and was equipped with forearm protection, oval shield, gladius and shin guard. Uh, One particular type of gladiator, which is a really interesting one because apparently was uh, fought on horseback, was armed with a spear, a sword and shield and helmet. Probably these would be two people, you know, they would match them with one another. Both of them would be on horses fighting with similar equipment. Uh, We know of some gladiators who were armed with spears. We know of the Oplomachus, which was similar to the Thracian except for the lack of a griffin motive. The Mormillo, the Secutor, 
so I don't want to kill you with too many names, but basically there were a whole bunch of types with slightly different weaponry. There is one that I want to mention because it's interesting, or rather two that I'm going to mention because they are very different in appearance. The first is the Retiarius, who always fought equipped with a net, a trident, a dagger, no helmet, no har- no kind of armor, except for an arm guard and and you know to protect the shoulder and the neck on the same side on which they carry the net so clearly this was the most unique gladiator you know the the guy with a net and the trident i mean these look nothing like a roman soldiers other gladiators look more like soldiers this guy clearly did not speaking of the creation of the retiarius author susanna shadrake writes the Roman appetite for watching new and inventive ways of killing may have inspired this. And another unique-looking gladiator was the Dimacheros, which was a gladiator type from the late empire, was armed with two swords and no shield. Very Miyamoto Musashi right there, with the two-sworded technique. In movies, these rules have mostly been ignored. Movies, after all, are not historical documentaries, so they have usually changed the look of gladiators to suit their needs. Most movies, for example, avoid the use of helmets, something that nearly all gladiator types, except for the Retiari, used, for the simple reason of making the characters more easily identifiable and heightening the drama by showing the actors' facial expressions during combat. As far as the Retiari are concerned, the lack of helmet was bad luck for them, at least when the editor of the games was the Emperor Claudius, since Suetonius tells us that Claudius never spared defeated Retiari, because they were the only ones whose faces he could see at the moment they died, and Claudius, being a weird sadist that he was, apparently didn't want to miss out on that experience. Okay, now that you guys are up to speed about the basics of gladiators, let's go a little in a more interesting direction. Let's take a look at what a day at the games actually looked like. In particular, what were the actual events that took place in the arena. Audiences flocked to the arena early in the morning and brought food from home, since the events would usually last most of the day. One of the things that happened very early in the schedule of events was a drawing of lots in public to decide who would be fighting against whom. There would also be a public inspection of weapons to make sure they were sharp, and then the gladiators would practice in public their warm-up exercises, sort of the equivalent of a boxer shadow boxing for the crowd. Historically, the events that could take place in the arena could be divided in a few different sets. The individual duels between highly trained gladiators are what we are mainly focusing on. But while gladiatorial combat was definitely the highlight of the games, they were by no means, you know, gladiatorial combat was by no means the only event. Other events include the Vinatio, um, which was basically the hunting of wild animals, usually undertaken by specialists. Battles between the Damnati, who were convicts, who had been sentenced for their crimes to die in the arena, 
sometimes rarely the naumachia which was a variation on the battles among the damnati one that took place in ships fighting each other either on a lake or on a flooded field also part of the games were the often spectacular and gory executions of condemned criminals you know think uh, the christians being sent to be eaten by the lions being an example of this of this kind of execution one that was particularly loved by filmmakers the duels among gladiators almost always were between just two men you know modern movies about gladiators have usually included uneven fights between one gladiator against many none of the many historical sources about the games even hints that anything of this sort ever happened reason for this is quite simple no matter how skilled a single gladiator may have been the odds that he would have ever survived a fight against multiple armed trained opponents would have been very low anyone with any experience in real combat can testify to that the only exception to this ruling when someone who's highly trained fights against two or more opponents who lack any skills Movie gladiators, on the other hand, are shown defeating multiple opponents almost as often as they are shown participating in individual duels. The roots for this predilection for numerically uneven fights in cinema and video games are neither particularly deep nor difficult to gauge. If there's something dramatic and heroic in winning a sword fight against one opponent, then it logically follows that it is even more dramatic and more heroic to win against many opponents. For a long time, martial arts movies have pushed this tendency to sacrifice realism on the altar of spectacle. You know, one of the most iconic scenes in the history of martial arts cinema, Bruce Lee, is shown effortlessly defeating dozens of rival fighters. In this way, the achievements of the movie's hero are magnified to achieve mythic status. Choreographers have a field day letting their creativity run wild. And even though the result may not exactly be realistic, it usually has the merit of turning the raw ugliness of violence into a fighting dance of great visual beauty. Probably inspired by the popularity of martial art movies, fight choreographers have borrowed this approach and applied it to gladiators. But yeah, long story short, this stuff never happened. Gladiatorial fights were nearly always individual duels. Suetonius records one particular case, one fight between five pairs of gladiators, so they are still matched evenly one against one, but five pairs are fighting at the same time. This is the highest number of gladiators fighting simultaneously ever recorded. In almost all other historical references, gladiators engage exclusively in duels. But worry not, if two people trying to kill each other don't quite do it for you, and what you really need are lots of people trying to kill each other, If you time-travel yourself back to a day at the games in ancient Rome, you would not be disappointed. Staged battles, in fact, were very much on the menu of the day's events. Battles featuring dozens, if not hundreds of fighters divided into teams regularly happen. 
Typically, the battles could either be recreations of real historical conflicts or fantasy matches between armies that had never fought each other in real life. Fantasy, military history and theater met in these very violent, epic stage productions. But despite their popularity, battles were considered a completely separate event from gladiatorial combat. Gladiators didn't participate in them, because they received very specialized instruction as duelists. Their training was expensive, so every effort was made to use them where their skills had a chance to shine. The chaos of battle was certainly not the right setting, since it would have made it very difficult for the audience to appreciate the nuances in the technique displayed by gladiators. Battles were spectacular, but mainly because of the huge numbers of fighters involved, not because of anyone's particular skills. So if not gladiators, then who fought in them? Well, the people who had the bad luck to end up in them were, as I mentioned earlier, what the Romans referred to as the damnati, either prisoners of war or criminals condemned to die in the arena. Romans figure that Rather than going through the mundane task of having to kill a bunch of people with bureaucratic efficiency, it would be a lot more fun to give them weapons, throw them into the arena in front of a crowd of enthusiastic spectators, and force them to kill each other until they were all dead. You know, once, when he sponsored games, good old Gaius Julius Caesar decided that he couldn't just be like any other editor who organized one of these stage battles, He was Caesar, after all. Everything he did had to be special. So he organized the first Naumachia ever recorded in Rome. As I mentioned earlier, the Naumachia was a battle in which armies of Damnati would fight in ships floating, either on an artificial lake specially dug for the occasion or in a flooded field. In this case, Caesar's naval battle was supposed to reenact a battle between the Egyptian and Phoenician fleets. Just like the land battles enacted in the arena, the Naumachia could almost be seen as a historical stage play, except that the actors truly died in the course of the performance. Speaking of stage plays in which actors actually died, let's introduce another event that was part of the game the executions of convicted criminals. Romans, in fact, felt that a wholesome family afternoon at the stadium would not be complete without witnessing some nice execution. But not any boring execution, because, you know, they were Romans, and they had a refined taste when it came to watching people die. Executions in the arena were public performances going much against the modern idea of making capital punishment a somewhat sterile procedure that should be as painless as possible, ancient Romans turned executions into something equally spectacular and excruciatingly painful. The advice given by by the emperor Caligula to the torturers and executioners at his service, make him feel that he's dying, perfectly captured his attitude. The execution of members of the political elite sometimes served as the only exception to this rule. You know, Thanks to their high rank, 
nobles were often executed by decapitation, something that was considered less painful and more dignified than most other forms of capital punishments. Other than that, ancient Roman execution could take many forms. Seneca reports about a type of execution that took place during the lunchtime intermission of the games, sometime between the morning venatio, the animal land, and the gladiatorial fights in the afternoon. Condemned criminals, wearing no armor or any kind of protective gear, were paired against each other in fights to the death. In Seneca's own words, the men have no defensive armor, they are exposed to blows at all points and no one ever strikes in vain. The outcome of every fight is death. The winner would then face a fresh opponent until all of the condemned men but one had died. And you figure, okay, you are the one survivor, yay! Well, not really, because the last survivor of the fights was finished off by an executioner. Yet another form of execution that took place in the arena was by burning. Those condemned ad flammas were dressed in a garment known as the tunica molesta, which was some kind of clothing that had been drenched in a flammable substance such as peach or nafta, and then they were set on fire. The writer Josephus reports that at the end of the Jewish wars, the emperor Titus had over 2,500 Jewish prisoners killed in one of three ways, either ad flammas, in fight to the death, such as those mentioned by Seneca, or ad bestias. I've already explained the first two, but so far I've said nothing about ad bestias, so let's get into this. In this case, animals were cast in the role of executioners and killed prisoners either by eating them, this was done by tigers, lions, bears, and other carnivores who had been left without food for a while, in order to ensure that they would attack their intended victims. Or animals could crush to death those sentenced to die. This was done by large animals such as elephants. Among the Romans, this type of death penalty found its origin in the army as punishment against foreign deserters. In the year 168 before Common Era, the consul Lucius Emilius Paulus Macedonicus ordered foreign deserters to be crushed to death by his elephants. And Scipio Emilianus, in the year 167 before Common Era, took things one step further by bringing these types of executions from the battlefield to the arena. He allowed the foreign deserters to survive a little longer until he staged some games in occasion of his triumph. Only then he had them killed by being thrown to wild animals. At later dates, the condemnation ad bestias was no longer limited just to foreign military deserters, but was also extended to particularly despised groups such as criminal slaves and Christians. This is where things get really weird. If you think they were weird so far, this is nothing. The Roman passion for gory executions went so far as inducing them to stage what historian Carlin Barton has termed snuff plays. Yeah, it's as bad as it sounds. These snuff plays took place in the middle of the day, 
As people were having their lunch, they would break up the pace of the games by witnessing the snuff plays, which were basically executions that reenacted some kind of famous myth. Historian K.M. Coleman wrote for the Journal of Roman Studies a seminal article on this topic entitled Fatal Charades, Roman Executions Staged as Mythological Enactments. Let's give you some examples. In the myth of Orpheus, he said to play the lyre, in the lyre being L-Y-R-E, you know, ancient instrument similar to an harp, I guess, that would be the closest. He said to have played in such an amazing way that even dangerous animals were tamed and followed him everywhere. Well, a Roman sense of humor led them to give a similar instrument to a prisoner, throwing in the arena, telling him to try to charm the wild predators that were about to be unleashed against him. Needless to say, this wouldn't work. Predators would eat him, and spectators would laugh at the funny joke. In another instance, some poor wretch was dressed as Hercules and that to reenact his story. Now, in the myth... Hercules ended up wearing some clothing that had poison on it and ended up horribly burned before being saved by the goddess Athena. In the Roman version, they dress the victim as Hercules with clothes that had been doused with pitch and then they would set him on fire. And guess what? No Athena would come to save the person condemned to death, so tough luck. The ancient Roman writer Marshall famously described another one of these events. I quote, As Prometheus, bound on Scythian crag, fed the tireless bird with his too abundant breast, so did Laureolus, hanging on no sham cross, giving his flesh to a Caledonian bear. His lacerated limbs lived on, dripping gore, and in all his body there was none. Finally he met with the punishment he deserved, the guilty wretch that plunged a sword into his father's throat, or his master's, or in his madness had robbed a temple of its secret gold, or laid a cruel torch to Rome. The criminal had outdone the deeds of ancient history. In him what had been a play became an execution. So he's saying, you know, people accused of uh, or convicted of really nasty crimes, being an arsonist, killing one's father, things like that, they would be used in this kind of death plays. Another big hit with Roman audiences was the castration of Attis. In the myth, Attis had the bad idea of cheating on a goddess, who in revenge made him insane, and convinced him to castrate himself. So you can imagine what would happen to the condemned man in the arena. Also, the myth of Icarus speaks of a misguided attempt at human flight. Now, Icarus famously fell to his death when the wings created by his father were melted because he flew too close to the sun. Similarly, Romans would put some wings on a condemned man and throw him over a pit with wild animals. 
When the unfortunate guy couldn't fly and would come crashing down to the ground, animals would promptly eat him. In another lesser-known myth, a lady named, I'm guessing on the pronunciation because I never heard it, I only read it, Dierse, Dierse, spelled D-I-R-C-E, ended up tied to the horns of a bull that dragged her to her death. Apparently this was done in the arena to some condemned women. But the prize for the most disturbing snuff play ever staged by romance in the arena, and, you know, if you had the horrible idea of listening to this episode with kids, this is where you may want to rethink your life choices, because it's about to get way uglier than anything I've said so far. So the prize for the most disturbing snuff play ever staged by the romance in the arena goes to the reenactment of the myth of Pasiphae and the bull. Pasiphae was the wife of King Minos, who had sex with a bull and gave birth to the mythological Minotaur. So yes, you can imagine what the Romans did. Supposedly they dressed the condemned woman in a cowhide, smeared her with the scent from a cow in heat, resulting in a potentially deadly case of bestiality. In case you're thinking, come on, this must be an invention of some particularly sick writer, and the Romans could not have possibly staged this in the arena, against the ancient author Marshall come to as a witness, saying that he personally saw this performed. In addition to plain old sadism, part of the rationale for this horrific execution was that they taught a lesson. The body of the condemned served as the medium used to tell a tale. As we'll see in the next episode, in the case of gladiatorial duels, the body of the gladiators were meant to convey a lesson about bravery and facing death and hopelessness with dignity. But executions and snuff plays express a radically different kind of message. One of the primary lessons taught through the public spectacle of the incredible suffering to which the condemned were subjected was the primacy of the Roman state. In his detailed study of execution contained in his Discipline and Punishment, famous writer Foucault wrote, The public execution is to be understood not only as a judicial, but also as a political ritual. It belongs, even in minor cases, to the ceremonies by which power is manifested. Similarly, historian Keith Hopkins wrote, Public punishment ritually reestablished the moral and political order. The power of the state was dramatically reconfirmed. Because the thing is, criminal behavior was not seen only as an offense against its immediate victim or victims, but also against the law itself, along with its enforcers, which is to say the state, and at least in imperial times, the ruler. Foucault continues on. Beside its immediate victim, the crime attacks the sovereign. It attacks him personally, since the law represents the will of the sovereign. So what Foucault is saying, and the same applies to ancient Rome, is that by breaking the law, the condemned challenged the state. So the execution was obviously about punishing the transgressor, but perhaps even more so was about educating quote-unquote citizens on the consequences of disobeying the state through the torture, humiliation and death 
of those defying its mandates. The state offered a rather unforgettable reminder that it was not wise to challenge it. Public execution, then, were it was a way to reinforce the fear of breaking the law among the people. It taught a moral lesson by displaying in very graphic terms the consequences of defying accepted codes of behavior. Historian Susanna Shadrake agrees with this idea by making the case that the brutality of the Roman versions of capital punishment was designed to serve as a deterrent to anyone entertaining any notion of breaking the law and challenging the state. Famous examples such as the crucifixion of thousands among the remnants of Spartacus' army served this dual purpose of punishing the guilty part in the most painful way possible, while simultaneously warning everyone else that an identical destiny awaited all those who dare to stand against the state. Public executions, in other words, were a form of political theatre through which the state reaffirmed its superiority. And by including public executions within the list of official arena events, the editors of the games also chose to turn them into very gory forms of entertainment. The death of condemned prisoners would thus contribute to the viewing pleasure of the crowd and to the orgy of blood that a day at the arena entailed. Shadrache argues convincingly that, I quote, the Romans didn't hold their noses as they watched the imaginative and cruel slaughter of people who had threatened the peaceful conduct of their society. They felt a sense of restoration and reassurance that the order of things had been maintained. So this passion for executions on the part of the Roman public is identical to that reported by Foucault in regards to France many centuries later. According to Foucault, when the guillotine was first introduced, many people felt cheated, since they couldn't see well the faces of the condemned, and this lessened their enjoyment of the quote-unquote spectacle. This prompted them to begin chanting, Give us back our gallows! So this tells us that even in the late 1700s, early 1800s, throughout much of Europe, considerable numbers of people were disappointed by the switch to less painful forms of execution. It was only around this time that in the Western world executions moved away from being forms of public entertainment and were turned into the works of a more sterile, mechanized bureaucracy. And Foucault argues that in addition to entertaining the crowd, public executions were designed to enlist the public's help in punishing those who had defied the state and serve as a ritual through which citizens express their loyalty to the state. This was accomplished through the public making fun of the condemned and throwing things at them. Think, you know, Game of Thrones, uh, Walk of Shame kind of idea. This process, however, could sometimes backfire. Foucault argue, I quote, it was evident that the great spectacle of punishment ran the risk of being rejected by the very people to whom it was addressed. How could this be? Well, this could happen in the cases in which the audience sympathized with the condemned either because they found the punishment unfair 
or because they ended up admiring the conduct of the condemned at the time of the execution. And in some cases, backfire, it did. One could argue, for example, that the famous persecutions of Christians done by the Romans didn't work. Far from scaring people away from Christianity, persecutions may have increased the, the popularity of Christianity since there was something clearly powerful about people ready and willing to die in horrible ways because they believed that within seconds they would be in the presence of their God. Gory executions were to scare people who were intimidated by pain and death. But pain and death were actually bonus points in the Christian cult of martyrdom and many early Christians embraced them as gifts, making many Roman spectators wonder what was it that these guys knew. What power allowed them to walk to horrible deaths with smile on their faces? Now, obviously not every Christian lived up to this, but some did, and it was enough to cause a sensation, to strike a lot of spectators, making them think. Okay, enough with the executions. If you are an animal lover, or simply you aren't what in our days would be considered a complete sociopath, odds are you would have been troubled by another of the main events that were included in the games and usually performed in the morning. This was what the Roman called the venatio, or wild animals hunt. Traditionally, the hunt was a contest between specialized hunters known as the bestiari, mostly males but occasionally females, and wild animals that would usually end with all the animals being slaughtered. Sometimes rocks, trees and other landscape would be placed in the arena to make the contest more exciting by giving animals places to hide. But ultimately, an animal victory was simply out of the question. You know, the only uncertainty in regards to outcome was how many hunters would die along with the animals. Some have suggested that the purpose of this massacre of wildlife was not only for entertainment, but also to emphasize Rome's military strength, since he reminded people of the conquests of distant lands from which the exotic beasts came from. On top of that, the hunt also made a powerful statement about the ability of Roman civilization to control and defeat the untamed forces of nature symbolized by the animals. As author Alan Baker stated regarding the purpose of the Venatio, the Venatio reassured them that nothing on earth could stand in the way of their domination of the world. So in that sense, much like the executions, the Venatio was a statement of the power of the Roman state. The very first hunt was staged in the year 186 before Common Era by the general Marcus Fulvius Nobilior. By all the indication, this was a big hit and established a tradition that would last for centuries. Ancient Romans greatly enjoyed the animal hunts in the arena. To win favor with the crowd, the Emperor Titus had several thousands of animals massacred at the inauguration of the Coliseum. According to some estimates, over 9,000 of them. The same desire on the part of uh, Roman politicians to obtain exotic animals to be killed in the Venatio 
is a running theme through Suetonius' biographies of Roman rulers. The passion of the Romans for the Huns was so extreme that they even ended up wiping out certain species of animals from the territories under their domination. Cicero, for example, or Cicero, however you want to pronounce it, in a letter to Caelius, lamented how difficult it was to capture enough leopards for the games, since they had been in such high demand in the past that none could be found in the province under his control. Historically speaking, the hunt outlasted every other event that was once part of the games. In fact, it was still practiced during Christian times long after gladiatorial games had been banned, and it even survived in the, into modernity in the practice of the corrida, or the bullfight. If you're wondering why you've probably never seen the Venatio in movies about ancient Rome, it's likely because the popularity of these events in ancient Rome doesn't seem to match with contemporary taste. Unlike ancient Romans who possess no concept of animal rights, modern audiences would be disturbed by the hunt, finding it an offensive and distasteful example of cruelty against animals. Most modern societies accept animal suffering if it's justified by scientific research or as part of food processing, but usually condemn it if it's a form of entertainment. This is perhaps why most movies create a historically incorrect form of quasi-venatio that may be better received by the public. You know, in place of the hunts, they substitute combat between a single, usually poorly armed gladiator and some ferocious predator. Something that would have never happened in ancient Rome since gladiatorial duels and the Venatio were entirely different events requiring very different sets of skills. By making the odds of these interspecies duels appear uneven in favor of the animals, Filmmakers sometimes try to reduce the sense of pity and sympathy that may prevent their audience from enjoying the event. And rather than showing the animals as scared and prodded into action by whips and hot irons, as they often were in historical times, the animals are usually portrayed as dangerous and very enthusiastic about attacking their human antagonists. Okay, now that we discuss what took place at the games, let's address the where and when part. The when is easy. Most games, at least in Rome itself, took place in winter and spring because summer was too hot. As far as the where, in imperial times the events were mostly staged in large stadiums such as the Coliseum. In republican times, instead, there were no permanent structures. It was more typical to use much smaller venues with wooden bleachers, often located in marketplaces and public squares. So in earlier days the crowd was a lot smaller, perhaps a few hundred people in makeshift places, but also a lot closer to the action. Some of the chosen places in Rome before stadiums were built to house the games were the Forum, the Circus Maximus and any other space large enough where you could set up temporary stands for the spectators. But even a place as big as the Forum could hold maybe 3,000-4,000 spectators at best, 
and yet in the first century common era, Rome's population was estimated at about 1 million, and most of them wanted to go to the games. Never mind the fact that when bigger-than-usual events took place, not only people from Rome wanted, but people came from outside of Rome and camped in tents in the streets. So besides lack of access, one of the problems with using these improvised wooden scaffolds as a stadium is that they occasionally failed under more weight than they were ready to accommodate. In one occasion in the year 27 Common Era at a town just outside of Rome, some 50,000 people flocked to the games in a structure that really wasn't set up for those numbers. The scaffolds eventually collapsed, and it's estimated that well over 20,000 died on that day. At best, 20,000. Some estimates go a lot higher. Can you imagine one, you know, these, all these scaffolds all falling down, killing 20,000 people? This convinced the Roman Senate to encourage the building of more stable, permanent structures. The first permanent stadium had been built in Pompeii in the year 80 before Common Era and seated 20,000 people. In Rome, a series of smaller stadiums eventually gave way to the Colosseum in the year 80 Common Era. Originally it was called the Flavian Amphitheater and it could hold 50,000 people. The Colosseum was the ultimate state-of-the-art arena for gladiatorial combat. It included a complex system to raise things onto the arena floor from trees to animals to allow for a dramatic change in setting in the span of a few minutes. It also had a system to keep the shade over the spectators so that they wouldn't boil under the Roman sun. Much like in modern-day stadiums, Spectators could only enter with a ticket. You know, the rich and powerful usually acquired a whole bunch of them and then distributed cho- choice seats among their supporters. Programs were printed containing the names of the gladiators participating and the breakdown of the day's events. Each ticket had a section, row, and seat numbers. Up until the time of Augustus, women sat with the men which offered a great occasion to meet one another and carry on affairs. But Emperor Augustus, being the killjoy that he was, segregated seating arrangements by gender. You know, he allowed only Vestal virgins to sit close to the action and then he divided men and women. Now, in the provinces, it's unlikely that the seating for women was so restricted, but in the Colosseum they were usually located far from the action. Some people have speculated this was to avoid having high-status women becoming too intrigued with gladiators. The emperor had his own box, there was a special section for senators and knights, soldiers and civilians were in different sections, and so on. One thing that's particularly interesting that happened during the games was that a band would play while the gladiators fought much in the same way in which a band today plays during Muay Thai matches in Thailand while the matches are taking place okay let's switch gears to something else who was responsible for the games 
who ran the show and organized events. Clearly there were lots of people responsible for staging such a complex production. But one man stood above all. This was the editor of the games, the person financing and sponsoring the whole thing. Depending on the size of the show, just how many gladiators were involved, how large was the hunt, sponsoring the games could cost an insane amount of money, and the sponsor wouldn't really see most of that money back, so why do it? Mainly as a tool to build popularity. Elite Romans competed in putting on the most extravagant shows because it gave them prestige with potential supporters. Particularly at the time of the Republic, the aristocrats who thought of running for office would sponsor the games as a means to court voters. The idea being, you know, when the voting comes, remember who paid for your entertainment. Caesar, for example, was notorious for using the games to gain popularity and win the crowd's favor. During the Empire, within the city of Rome, only the Emperor was allowed to sponsor the games because he didn't want anyone else to gain prestige in that way. In the provinces, other officials could sponsor the games, but not in Rome. In addition to sponsoring the actual games, another way in which the editors could gain popularity was by distributing meat to the poor people of Rome at the end of the day spectacle. Particularly after a large venatium, lots of dead animals would be left on the field. Most poor people in Rome rarely had any meat in their diet. Their daily diet for, was consisted mainly of bread, maybe barley porridge with olive oil and some vegetables and fruit. Meat was a luxury. So put two and two together and you can figure out what happens next. The editor would distribute the meat of the animals to some of their poor supporters. So some dirt poor Roman family for a day would be dining on lion or bear or rhino or some other very exotic animal and would be thanking the editor of the games for their free meal. Now, I can't help bringing up a detail that makes this story grosser. Since the demand for this free meat was more than the supplies, every part of the animals would be used, including the internal organs. So far not so gross, but let's continue. Among the internal organs used were the stomach and the intestines. Okay, so what? Lots of people eat those things till today. Well, in some cases, these animals had killed one of the hunters sent against them or a victim of ex execution and eaten them. Which means that some poor Roman would be having more than just lion for dinner. In eating the partially digested contents of the lion's stomach, they would probably be eating human remains too. I'll give you a second to let that sink in. It's because of this free meat distribution that many poor people loved even rulers that some sorcerers paint as evil and terrible. For example, when the emperor Caligula died, Caligula, whose name is almost synonymous with insanity and depravity, many poor people mourned him because he had been very generous in sponsoring the games and handing out meat. 
Now that I have you truly grossed out, let's also mention that despite what I said above, sometimes the relationship between the editor and the audience could be hostile. A poor spectacle could lead to booze from the crowd. And if they didn't feel properly respected, editors could turn vindictive. There are records of emperors removing the shades from the stadium, thereby letting the audience be under a heavy sun. More deadly is a story told by Suetonius about the emperor Domitian. A spectator apparently commented within everybody being able to hear that a Thracian gladiator was more than good enough to beat his opponent, but not to overcome the editor's hostility. Domitian, in fact, didn't like Thracian gladiators. Domitian didn't take the criticism well, so he had the spectator dragged out of his seat, paraded around with a plaque on which he was written, a Thracian supporter who spoke evil of his emperor, and just to clarify what would happen to people speaking evil of the emperor, he had him then thrown into the arena and torn to pieces by dogs. Let's clear up a couple of misconceptions perpetuated by movies about the relationship between gladiators and the editors. Several films have the gladiators parading in front of the editor and addressing him with the Latin formula Morituri te salutant, which can be translated as those who are about to die salute you. It makes for a dramatic scene, but it's a complete invention. Or rather, there is a historical precedent for it. In one occasion, this sentence was spoken addressing the Emperor Claudius. This, however, wasn't done by gladiators, but was done by the Damnati, sentenced to die in the arena during a naval battle. Most gladiators, in fact, were not about to die in the arena during the day's events. Incidentally, in this one occasion involving Claudius, most of those sentenced to die didn't die after all, since they fought well enough and Claudius was in a good enough mood that he decided to pardon the survivors. But because of its dramatic quality, the sentence Moriturite Salutant has been usually included in many gladiatorial movies. Something else deserves a mention regarding the role of the editor. One of the most dramatic moments in a gladiatorial context was when a gladiator was defeated but not killed, and all faces turned to the editor of the games to see if the defeated gladiator was to be killed or spared. The crowd could definitely let their preference be known, either to spare him if he had fought well or kill him if he didn't. But ultimately the decision belonged to the man who would have to pay the heavy amount to the gladiator manager for the death of one of his men. In the iconic image we have all seen in movies, the editor would either turn his thumb up to spare the man or down to have him killed. This is such a classic part of the way the games have been represented in modern times that it may come, you know, may come as a surprise to find out that in reality this idea was derived from a painting from the late 1800s by Jean-Léon Jérôme entitled Pollice Verso. Jérôme in turn was influenced by a passage from the Roman author Juvenile who wrote in his satires and if the people turned their thumbs and demand a bloodbath 
they, meaning the editors, are happy to, to provide them with one. If you are an acute observer, you may have noticed that juveniles speak of turning a thumb, but not in which direction. Several scholars actually believe that the thumb down indicated sparing the gladiator, since he referred to putting the sword back into the sheath, whereas the thumb up indicated stabbing. Others believe that the thumb was actually turned sideways in a stabbing motion toward the heart. The fact is, no one really knows, but it's likely that our image of thumb up to mean life and thumb down to mean death may be false. There's also a similar controversy of what hand signal the gladiator would use if he were to admit defeat and ask for mercy, basically the equivalent of tapping out in MMA. But unlike MMA, where a tap-out means you lost the fight and you live to fight another day, once you, so to speak, tapped in a gladiatorial fight, you would be up to the editor to decide your fate. If the editor chose death, the defeated gladiator would become an active participant in his own death. The ritual which gladiators had drilled endless times to get them used to this possibility require them to kneel down, grab the knee of the willing gladiator, and stretch out the neck, exposing it, to present an easy target for the other gladiator to plunge his sword in. This ritual death was something that greatly impressed the Romans. In one of his books, Cicero, or Cicero, wrote, what even mediocre gladiator ever groans or ever alters the expression on his face? Which one of them acts shamefully, either standing or falling? And which of them, even when he does a succumb, ever contracts his neck when ordered to receive the blow? People like Cicero admired the gladiator's acceptance of death and the training that allowed them to do that. On the topic of gladiators dying in the arena, there's a wide array of opinions among historians who disagree strongly among each other regarding just how deadly gladiatorial combat was. Most modern movies love to hype the deadliness of gladiatorial combat for dramatic effect making it seem like every gladiatorial duel ended with one of the contenders getting killed. Some scholars echo this very dark view as well. Alan Baker, for example, writes, Most gladiators could reasonably expect to fight only two or three times before being killed in the arena. Marilyn Skinner clearly agrees, she writes, A few gladiators survive long enough to retire from the arena but probably most met their deaths at the hands of their fellows. And Keith Hopkins adds, each successive victory brought further risk of defeat and death. Other historians, however, derive very different conclusions from the same available evidence. Susanna Shadrake counters Hopkins' statement by suggesting quite logically that each victory increase the gladiator's odds of not being killed in the arena since by winning a gladiator gained more supporters who then demand mercy for him in case he were defeated. Roger Dunkel also notes that each gladiator's death 
ended up costing the editor of the games a very high fee. So quite often the editor, in order to avoid being stuck with too high of a bill, was very willing to spare anyone who fought decently enough. Carlin Barton and Jonathan Stamp, just to name a few, agree with this view and venture as an educated guess that only about 10% of gladiatorial matches ended in death during the Republic and also the early Empire. Dunkel, however, admits that this percentage may have increased a lot during the 2nd and 3rd centuries common era. Now, who's right in this debate? The fact that Suetonius informs us that even emperors renowned for their cruelty, such as Nero, would sometimes hold events expressingly prohibiting the killing of any gladiator, gives credibility to the latter school of thought, and also seems to suggest that the deadliness of gladiatorial combat may have been exaggerated by modern media. The reason for this is quite plain. Death is the most dramatic possible climax of gladiatorial combat in the arena. And since movies thrive on drama and spectacle, it is only logical that they would overemphasize this aspect in an effort to deliver a more exciting and pathos-filled story. So even though we don't have exact percentages, and we do know that the rate of mortality increased during imperial times, it seems a safe bet to say that plenty of defeated gladiators were spared to fight another day. Speaking of misconceptions, another misconception worth addressing is the idea pushed in many movies of a champion gladiator. The vast majority of gladiatorial movies speak of championship bouts between the top-ranked gladiator and the challenger. The notions of a precise ranking system and of an undisputed champion seem almost self-evident to modern audiences, since we are familiar through, you know, modern combat sports such as boxing and mixed martial arts offer this model, and even beyond combat sports in specific, just all modern sports are structured around the competition to win a championship, either in the form of an Olympic gold medal or national or war title. Since, in the popular imagination, gladiatorial combat is construed as an ancient, extreme version of a combat sport, then it seems logical to assume that it would follow the same structure. Ancient Romans, however, did not organize the gladiatorial circuit along these lines. They did have a loose ranking system based on the number of victories, but they did not crown a single undisputed champion. Okay, with this, we have now laid out the basics for what happened during a day at the games. To me, this is interesting and all, but it really is nothing but a warm-up for the really interesting stuff, which is what the second and last episode of this series will be about trying to figure out exactly why gladiatorial fights were so popular. What is it about two men fighting potentially to the death that attracted thousands of enthusiastic fans? And maybe by the time we are done we'll discover that we may not be as different from ancient Romans as some would like us to believe. And maybe 
maybe even more scandalous. We may found out that watching gladiatorial combat wasn't just the perverted pastime of a culture steeped in sadism, but there, there may actually be some uplifting aspect to it. I don't want to tease you and leave you waiting for too long, so the answers to these questions will come in the next episode, just a couple of weeks from now. Thank you for listening to this episode of History on Fire. The next one is coming up in just two weeks. Check it out because that's where today I just laid out the groundwork. In the next one is where things get extra interesting, at least for me. Maybe I'm a nerd for this kind of stuff, but that's where to me the next episode is what really brings it home. Having said that, uh, if you guys want to check out the Patreon for History on Fire, I'll put a link in the episode notes. Depending on how much you decide to donate monthly, there are options to get your um, some episodes early, to get copies of the episodes at free, or you know access to all the archive of History on Fire episodes, a few other options. Uh, one gentleman who has done that and shall be praised forever for that because he pledged the $50 level big thank you to Mark Blanchett for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at the $50 level thank you, thank you, thank you a big thank you of course to anyone who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link that's always deeply appreciated and big thank you to the sponsors so let me go to say thank you to them Flaviar. Flaviar decided to sponsor four episodes in 2018, and I'm very happy with that. Flaviar is the world's largest online club of spirits enthusiasts. What they offer to members is um, you get a theme tasting box that lets you try out different spirits, so you can taste a few of them, see which one you like best, and then you can decide whether you want to order a full-size bottle or not. You have access to a digital home bar, access to their vault, which holds a selection of rare and hard-to-find spirits. Um, a few other things, there are a bunch of other perks. They have an app that's considered the IMDB of spirits. Normally, we are thinking about whether to start uh, announcing in these episodes or to wait, because they have been having a waiting list, but they have arranged priority access for History on Fire listeners. So please go to flaviar.com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code HISTORY. Again, that's F-L-A-V 
iar.com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code history. I love their stuff. Hopefully if you try them, I, I have a very strong feeling you may be feeling the same way. Also big thank you to Blue Apron, That's, they're gonna sponsor us for the whole year and they are the ones who requested that we do 15 episodes this year, so that's why you're getting extra History on Fire in 2018. But besides sponsoring us, which already is a very sweet thing, they make amazing food and I'm eating it every week, it's just really really good stuff. Never the same recipe and somehow every single time is amazing. So check them out, they offer selection each week, uh, you can pick out of 12 new recipes and customers can pick either 2 or 3 or 4 depending on what best fits your schedule. Blue Apron is treating History on Fire listener to $30 off on your first order if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Big thank you to the sweet folks at Never Tap Gear. If you do any kind, especially if you do jiu-jitsu, but if you train in any kind of athletic activity, check them out. They sent me some of their uh, knee braces and they started sponsoring Savannah M in their MMA career, which is very sweet. Their knee braces are awesome. They are designed to kind of keep the knee in place and prevent some of the more typical minor injuries that are likely to happen during intense physical activity. So check them out. Very, very good stuff. And in the thank you and check them out, of course, my two usual sponsors that have been here since day one, Omnit and Datsusara. Onnit has, uh, if you have never tried them, you know, a bunch of their supplements, um, I need to check on their policy if it's still the way. I remember that Onnit policy was always that you could, um, if you say you don't like them, they just send you your money back. So you can just try out the supplements and I, don't quote me on it because I haven't checked lately if that's still the case, but you can ask them and find out quickly. They had a really good return policy. So to encourage people, because they feel that if people try their supplements, they're going to want to keep going with it, because they like it. So check them out at onnit.com forward slash history, and you'll receive an automatic discount. And of course, check out Datsusara. The link is in the episode note, but in any case, the website is the letter D, the letter S, and the word gear, dsgear.com. If you're even thinking of getting a bag, a backpack, a computer bag, a wallet, a hoodie, um, harness for your dog, the leash for your dog, there are all sorts of things that they make with hemp of great quality. They last a really long time. And speaking of customer service, they also have some of the best customer service I've ever seen. I mean, some of the stuff they have done for their... I won't even go into the story, but they are awesome. So check them out dsgear.com if you didn't catch some of the above websites the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com having said all this i want to wish you a wonderful day and see you again in a couple of weeks